0: Hello, humans. My name is Jesse, a.k.a. The Bizzle, and welcome to my audio commentary for the Star Trek reboot movie, the first one in 2009. I'm going to get to the countdown in just a minute, just a couple mi- uh, intro here about the movie. This Star Trek film, which was openly a reboot, came out in 2009 directed and produced by JJ Abrams a guy who I've always respected but never really watched a lot of his stuff and became a huge fan of his just from this movie basically and on top of that the way that he integrated so many Star Wars elements into a Star Trek movie from an adventure fast-paced crazy camera stuff all all that sort of goodness has given me and continues to give me great hope and confidence that the new Star Wars movie that JJ is directing is He's going to be amazing, or at least very, very good and entertaining, because he gets the aesthetic. He's the best at special effects in the world. As far as I can tell, um, this 2009 movie still looks better than a lot of movies today from a CGI standpoint, including parts of most of the Marvel movies. I guess Joss Whedon with Age of Ultron, which you know I think is probably the best Marvel movie. Most people would disagree with me. They'd say the original Avengers or Winter Soldier, both of which I love. But until Age of Ultron, uh, there wasn't like sort of a flawless, epic Marvel movie from a CGI standpoint. But I still love JJ's aesthetic. He loves practical stuff. He likes m- mixing futuristic stuff with very old school elements, and he totally nails the aesthetic in this movie. But beyond that, the filming, the editing, but especially the writing, and of course the acting. The big three Chris Pine as Kirk, Zachary Quinto as Spock, and my god, Zoe Saldana as Ahura. Who was a main character in the original series, but they push her up even more in this one as someone with uh, leadership abilities, and great charisma, and sort of the heart of the crew that keeps it together when everything seems to be falling apart. This is where I really fell in love with Zoe Saldana as an actress. I've loved everything she's done since, and the rest of the crew, Simon Pegg, Scotty, Carl Urban as the drug neurotic Dr. McCoy, aka Bones, um, John Cho of Harold and Kumar fame, kills it as Sulu. It's just an amazing cast performance all around. It's a flawless movie like Winter Soldier. There's really no shot or line that I would change, and any inconsistencies in sort of the logistics of the plot, um, which I will get to, don't bother me at all, because there's always great character payoffs. So I don't want to talk too much. I get a lot of commentary in here. Um, this was great. The follow-up into Darkness from 2013 was very disappointing, especially because it was also by J.J. I speculate it was because J.J. was already thinking about Star Wars, which is what he's always wanted to do. He took the Star Trek project, and so I wonder if he half-assed the second one. Just a weak script. Who knows? Who cares? I think the third one is going to be great, even though J.J. is not directly involved But even if it's not, this first one stands alone as, you know, one of the best, if not the best, Star Trek movies. It's hard to compare because the action is so fast. The techno babble is very much reduced. And even as someone who was a hardcore Star Trek fan and a huge Star Trek nerd growing up, I was totally cool with making this movie a Star Trek-Star Wars hybrid, but where you preserve the heart of the universe and the characters. And so I love this movie. I, You know, I, I, I didn't coin this, but I agree that this is the best Star Wars movie since Return of the Jedi. I'm pretty sure Episode 7 coming out at uh, the end of the year will, will be the best Star Wars movie since this movie. And is an actual Star Wars movie. So I hope you enjoy it. Um, it's time to cue things up. Go through my little speech here. You're going to want to go to zero hours, zero minutes, zero seconds. I'm going to count it down. You're going to want to hit play when I say go. I like to, well, you should definitely have subtitles on. I like to put a little ambient sound in the background. You can hear just a little of the music and a tiny bit of the dialogue and sound during my very brief silences and pauses. I pretty much talk straight through this one. But the music is fantastic, as is the sound design, so you might want a little ambient sound. So I'll give you a second here, or you can pause it to queue up your DVD, Blu-ray, digital file, uh, Amazon, Netflix, whatever. And I'm going to go ahead and count it down, so get ready for the countdown. When I say go, you hit play, and hopefully it will line up pretty good. All right, here we go. Three, two, one, go. All right, here we go in the commentary for Star Trek. I normally refer to this as the Star Trek Reboot 2009. Great music in the beginning. So I was skeptical of this this coming in, because I knew it was going to be more of like an action-adventure Star Wars type movie. Just knowing J.J. Abrams, everything coming into it, you know, by 09 the internet was full of enough rumors and information, I knew what to expect. But since the last two Star Trek movies of Star Trek Next Generation cast, Insurrection and Nemesis, uh. The music with the Bad Robot is just classic. This is so great. This made me love Bad Robot forever, even though I've not really seen a lot of J.J.
1: Abrams stuff.
0: Okay, so I'm going to praise this movie a lot and talk about the bigger implications, but for right now, we just need to pay attention to this first scene because this scene is the mission statement of the movie. And I was hoping of the franchise. Maybe we'll get to that later.
1: The USS Kelvin. Just looks amazing. I mean, I've never seen Star Trek look, look this good.
0: Got the single engine there, not the dual engines of the various Enterprise ships. This is an earlier time. If you are a Star Trek nerd like me, you know what the Kelvin is. This is just an amazing image. I mean, it's like the spikes from the, the Godhead in the Matrix, the Deus Ex, Mach- uh, Deus Ex Machina. But it's a great image. This just looks so good in the theater. I remember. I, it just it, The effects look great on uh, my TV now in high def. Okay, here we go. Already very un-Star Trek. Lots of focus on focus, camera moving all over the place. And this you never see in Star Trek. Just a huge amount of ordnance being fired from all sides. Explosions everywhere. Immediately, you realize the ship is way outclassing the Enterprise. Warp drive's been knocked out. They're trying desperately to survive here. So you have no idea what's going on. You're like, okay, what's that to do with the Star Trek crew? This is great. You got to kill someone early. This doesn't happen enough. It's not that I want people to die, but you got to create the stakes, and that's what space would be like. I'm not sure that's ever happened in a Star Trek property, in you know thousands of episodes and a dozen movies. They're already ready for evacuation. It's great how fast it's moving.
1: unwise is a very
0: Vulcan term we know that the Romulans and the Vulcans are related if you've watched any of the shows they don't talk about it much here unfortunately okay here we go okay that's Thor right there people you might not recognize Chris Hemsworth he's very young Uh, well he's ripped (laughs) he is not Thor and he's talking in a great American accent which is so hard to pull off. You're Captain now, Mr. Kirk. We'll see that again later. So you hear Mr. Kirk. You're like, okay, we know Chris Pine is Captain Kirk. So who the hell is this guy? Um, But again, if you're a Star Trek nerd, you'll know that uh, that is uh, Kirk's father. So the opening scene is really the mission statement for the movie, and not just because of the sort of holy birth of James T. Kirk from his dad George and his mom, but we see that this is going to be fast-moving, it's going to be colorful, the effects are going to be amazing... Really, the antithesis of everything that sort of old school Star Trek was about, and I'm including, you know, Star Trek The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine and so forth. I love the sort of radiation uh, uh, plastic door they have there. You immediately like this captain. He's bold, he's fairly fearless. I love that they're monitoring his heart rate. Even in the furthest future, version of Star Trek that we know. You never see anything like monitoring the heart rate, but it works well within the movie. This is a great design color scheme wise, definitely taking from the blues and greens of the Romulans in Star Trek The Next Generation, where their ships and people look amazing. They don't go for the full forehead prosthetic. They opt for tattoos. They do have curved ears, although they're differently curved than um, the Vulcans, who are their cousins.
1: Neither side knows what's going on right now. The Romulans don't realize they're in the wrong time. And
0: obviously the captain has no clue. So, when you're watching this movie... First of all, I went into this knowing it was going to be more kind of Star Wars... But set in the Star Trek universe. But when you see Spock's face this early on... And the implications that he's a central part of the story... He says he's not familiar with them. And if you aren't a Star Trek person... You know, wouldn't it be surprising that this is great. So gratuitous. Terminated. Oh, man. There's Thor. Chris Hebsworth, okay, so like, you can see where the laser fire, the phaser fire is coming from, you know, there's turrets, we're not used to seeing that, and it's super rapid, they're firing everything, the next generation, it's one giant phaser burst, basically, this is guns everywhere, Battlestar Galactica style, although it's lasers and not bullets, couldn't change that, a lot of great
1: aliens in this first shot, Very industrial-looking,
0: really the opposite of the clean, smooth, polished, sterile look of most Star Trek ships. People dying, you rarely see that in Star Trek. You certainly don't see wanton and death the way we see in this movie. And wanton's not really the correct word. I mean, it's just realistic. Way more realistic than the shows where people rarely die. So he's setting the steering mechanism to kamikaze into Romulan ship conveniently or inconveniently for the Kirks the autopilot is not functioning and so we immediately know he's gonna have to pilot it himself Um, I don't know why an advanced starship can't just be steered straight those eyes look good but you can totally tell it's CGI the huge-eyed alien woman but she's a great where She says, push, and her eyes just open wide. and It looks great. So we're not even eight and a
1: half minutes in, and we're already totally into this universe.
0: And this is so heartbreaking, and we don't see these characters again except by reference in the future when Jim Kirk, who's just about to be born, grows up. But their chemistry is amazing. I don't even know if they appeared on the same soundstage ever. Here we go. Now, huge eyes. And the scream with the sad horn music in the background. Now it goes to silence. The agony of birth, but also in the impending death of her husband, George. Who you immediately buy as heroic, and it's because it's Chris Hemsworth, who you immediately buy as heroic in Thor. Um, Thor, of course, more difficult because he's the lead in numerous movies, but also because, you know, Thor's not as smart as this guy, though he's way more powerful. Chris Hemsworth has to be good looking, heroic. Not the most intelligent guy and still lovable. But in this 10 minutes or so, you're so with this guy. But it's important because even though you don't see George Kirk again, his son... Oh, God, this is so heartbreaking. And I love that he hits the warp engine. You know, realistically, it should have already crashed into the ship, but it looks so good, the single warp engine. Gotta have the countdown clock, as I mentioned in every sci-fi suspense scene. Pretty real looking, baby. She's beautiful, by the way. I always mean to look up who she is. She totally looks like Jim Kirk's mom. I mean, you know, it doesn't want, you don't want to go out this way, but protecting your wife getting to talk to her one last time and hear your baby. I love that they're arguing over the name right before he dies. It's great. It's the only thing that's keeping him sitting in that chair right now. I like that they say Jim and not James. Because we know it. Jim is short for. This is just beautiful. And, you know, this will be a running theme. I love it. you see how his body flies away with the explosion and she sees it conveniently through the window but you had to do that it looks amazing jj abrams knows what he's doing with special effects and so star wars episode seven is going to look great i'm still not sure he has the narrative power to you know fully realize what we all hope is realized great to see the little mini fleet of Ships there, apparently. That's 800 people (laughs) at those little shuttles, but whatever. Maybe there's a bunch off-screen. They retain the boxy look from the Star Trek series, which is
1: great. The music
0: in this movie is awesome. This part, the theme is just glorious and and totally works within the Sort of history of great Star Trek music. And they're not shying away from the symbol that they wear, the patch on there. Okay, so this is where the movie really takes off, even though that first scene was amazing. This is such an obvious scene to do and has only one real purpose, which is to show that Jim Kirk, uh, even as a kid, is rebellious and defiant, anti authoritarian, contrarian, and also a little dumb and reckless. This kid is absolutely perfect. He looks nothing like <laughs> grown-up Kirk and Chris Pine. I love all he has to do is hit media and the Beastie Boys comes on. He has it keyed up already. I wonder if he knows that's going to happen. He looks back and sort of grabs at it. What did he think was going to happen at 100 miles an hour? Totally dyed blonde hair, but it works because this kid is just totally off his fucking rocker. I love that this kid looks like a normal kid and this is the thing with Star Trek. J.J. Abrams embraced the, you know, ridiculously styled uh, uh, aesthetic vision that Roddenberry had for what the Star Trek future would look like. But in this scene, other than the, the floating motorcycle, it's very grounded in reality. Which shows that, you know, while we're led to believe in all the Star Trek properties that everyone on Earth is living this, like, utopian lifestyle... Maybe that's not so much the case. And maybe there are even people that yearn for simpler times. And, you know, Jim Kirk, at least in this movie, as portrayed by Chris Pine, embraces a form of American reckless heroism that ultimately turns out to be the right move in this movie, but is a little opposed to the sort of the Federation of... uh, you know, mode of acting, great shot, oh man, I don't know how they filmed that, I don't know how they filmed this, I mean, this is clearly a green screen, but it looks amazing, maybe it ends at the shadow, but that's still far away down, love the flight suit, I want that leather jacket, this guy looks like a ghost from Starcraft, if you guys know what I'm talking about, the cloaking assassins, with the one red eye, it looks great, mixed with a gas mask, Shows you the Federation has a little
1: bit of a darker side. Now,
0: right to Vulcan. So, you know, in this movie, as in the series, in the Star Trek movies from the original cast, it ultimately comes down to Spock and Kirk and their opposing personalities. Logic versus emotion, rationality versus feeling, and they make a great team, and this movie is all about how they make that great team. This is great. I mean, while Kirk is driving cars off cliffs, Spock is talking about morally praiseworthy versus morally obligatory, which, by the way, uh, is very uh, Western philosophical.
1: So you see how brilliant he is already.
0: So you know, having watched Next Generation growing up before I really knew the Star Trek movies, other or the the original Star Trek, other than the movies. I didn't realize how much data the android, next generation, was a modified version of Spock. Incredibly logical, remembers every tiny detail. You know, this is the 36th time or whatever that they've tried to elicit elicit an emotional response, and it works. It took up 36 times to uh, realize that insulting his mother was the best way to get him pissed. The green blood, awesome. Goblin blood.
1: This is a great notion
0: uh, that actually Vulcans were forced to create this emotionless um, society or, or training process because their emotions were actually less in control than ours, which is hard to believe the amount of destruction that has been leveled against the Earth because of the you know misplaced emotion and ir- irrationality. He says he married his mom. His dad says he married his mom because it was sort of politically uh, expedient because she's from Earth, and he is the ambassador to Earth.
1: Now, he tells
0: Spock, who is now, there's a time jump here, but they don't have to announce it. We just know. I know the writer is awesome, and this are um absolutely kills it miss having her around in the movies but even though in his dad's speech he says you can choose the human way or the vulcan way basically he's really saying you should choose the vulcan way especially in light of these recent events where you lost your temper his discomfort is so human there's no logical reason why mother fixing his shirt should cause him such discomfort. He, or it's just nervousness about what's happening, I guess. Personal query. Again, something Data would say.
1: Even I did not know that it was called Kolodar. Yeah, he's,
0: uh, he uh, feels like he's hurting her feelings. She's way past that. She's married to Vulcan. She lives in Vulcan. I don't know how she makes it around. If everyone hates humans so much on Vulcan, it must be a tough life. Maybe that's why she's wearing robes. It's a little bit of a conceit that the Vulcans are kind of mean. Uh, we see it here, too, are kind of petty. But, you know... I guess you can be mean and petty without having emotional motivations behind it. We see the hubris of the Vulcan Academy, which thinks it's way better than Starfleet. It certainly is way less powerful, but perhaps you know, intellectually on a higher level, I suppose. I love this. Zachary Quinto is so good at Spock. As great as Chris Pine is, as Kirk, this is a great shot right here. You know what he's going to say. His dad knows it's coming. See, when you want to do a hero shot, you shoot from below the hero. Even here, his head is his up. His dad's pissed, but he knows. See, this seems like anger. But... You know it's never clear with Vulcans whether it's a one hundred percent repression because we see it through Spock, who's half human, so when he does have emotional responses, you say, "Well, wow, that's this human side. I love how they start playing the funk music while still on Spock at Vulcan. it's great it that little two second overlap with the American music and the Vulcan Academy just how okay." So this is where I fell in love with Zoe Saldana. And she's neck and neck with Scarlett Johansson for me. Actually, I'm really more of a Zoe guy at this point because just following her on social media, reading articles and seeing interviews, she's super smart, politically active. She is a horror. I mean, she's playing herself here. She's perky. She's full of love and energy. Look, Just look at that. I mean, just stunning. (laughs) And uh, Kirk is already wasted her shot's on her. This is great. See, unlike a lot of super hot girls who are just mean, uh, if you try and flirt with them, no offense, hot girls. I actually have a lot of very attractive female friends, but uh, they are awesome, unique people. But, you know, you meet a hot girl at a bar or a cute girl, and they'll just be nasty if you try and pull this stuff. And yes, he's smooth in making her laugh, But, you know, she's kind of sweetly trying to tell him to fuck off. Here we go. She assumes he's a hick, which he is, but he's also super smart. And this is important important to establish that he knows important, uh, you know, heady stuff. Even though he's not in Starfleet. (laughs) I love it. I don't only have sex with farm animals. All right, and now this is establishing the temper and just aggressive desire for fighting that defines Jim Kirk. <laughs> Four on one. Get some more guys, it'll be an even fight. Up, oh, that's it. Can't smack the guy in the face. It's interesting, Kirk actually doesn't think that this is going to lead to a fight until he gets hit. Um, what I love about Chris Pine as Kirk is he takes the Han Solo approach, where even though he's always starting fights, (laughs) lucky guy. Um, even though you know he's not always starting the fights, he's sort of always looking for a fight, and he's fearless. But he has a look on his face like I know I'm going to get my ass kicked, and there's above average chance I'm going to lose this battle, but I'm still going to fight it. Harrison Ford does that great in the Star Wars movies, but especially in Indiana Jones. Some great blood. PG 13 or not. So, the guy who plays Christopher Pike, who's a famous actor, um, I'm blanking on his name, immediately charismatic, cares for this guy, and then he got this look what? You look familiar. And now he has hero worship for this drunk
1: farm boy because of who his dad is. He's still a
0: joint gang. I love that Pike doesn't stop him. I don't think he had to do a dissertation to know about his dad. I think his dad would be a legend, but he knows about him and respects the hell out of his dad. instinct to leap without looking pike knows that starfleet is growing a little too conservative a little too by the book which makes into darkness one of many reasons the second one into darkness there it is his tests are off the charts i love that you like being the only genius level repeat offender in the midwest it's a great speech it's a pump-up speech that's not over the top there's no music he's not yelling at him He just says... He just goes for it. We need you. We need your, you know, just irrational confidence. I like that you can get a ship in A if you're, you know, that brilliant and that great of a leader. He knows he's brilliant, and he knows that he has leadership qualities. Because of his dad, he can see it right here, even though he's covered in blood for acting like a lunatic. Pike really comes down on Kirk for the very qualities that he professes to like about him in the second movie, Into Darkness, and is one of the many reasons that movie was not very good, unfortunately. Saved eight hundred lives in twelve minutes, including your mother's and yours. Talking about his dad, I dare you to do better. They use that in the trailers, you know. But it, it, oh, look at that shot. Abrams really knows what he's doing with the camera. He sells that scene. It's very understated, but it's really powerful. It would be so easy for that scene not to work and for Kirk not to just... He probably stays up all night, just sobers up, and then rides there to the, the, the shipyard in the mo- in the morning. But it would have been very easy for him to... Um, I'm sorry, for that transition to be you know, not believable. Great shots of Iowa, where
1: my dad is from. I always make fun of him for cornfields.
0: And here we see the Enterprise under construction, and it's not clear to people, even me, you know, because it does look like the original 1701 Enterprise from the original series. It's different enough and it being half built, but it's clearly the Enterprise. And he falls in love with it before it's even finished, before he even knows what the future holds for him in that area. Great looking futuristic motorcycle that somehow still feels modern day. (laughs) It's like Jerry Seinfeld with the smelly car, throwing the keys to the homeless guy. The smell's so bad he can't even force himself to take it, being homeless. I love the goofy style, um, the goofy smile on Chris Pine's face. And, you know, he's immediately excited about a new adventure. He has no fucking clue what he's getting into. Oh, yeah. Yeah, those, those guys he got in the fight with, we're gonna see them again. they will get minor temporary revenge on him later in the movie. And then I have to serve him as captain. Yep, real seatbelts. Oh, man, Zoe Saltada. She just conveys so much with the tiniest looks. Okay, so I already love Carl Urban before this because his portrayal of Aobur in Lord of the Rings is just so glorious. He's this, like, perfect warrior knight that still comes off as three-dimensional. He's badass, but he's honorable and disciplined. He saves the day, really, in both of the final two movies. I may throw up on you. Yeah, I think these things are pretty safe. And, uh, you know, Bones is a great character in the original Star Trek. He's an alcoholic, super neurotic uh, uh, doctor that doesn't seem like he could become a doctor or have the the mentality for it or stability. And, you know, Carl Urban in this scene sells the character completely. The seeds of their friendship, which is another very important part of Star Trek. Yes, he and Spock were great. Uh, were a great duo as professionally, but his best friend was uh, was this guy was bones um, and for basically, <laughs> Urban is playing the exact opposite role of aomer He was so upright, he was so in control um, and And Carl uh, Urban as McCoy has some of the best. Uh, Comedic lines in the in the movie Three years later, so the timetable on all this stuff took me a little bit to get a hold of, so three years later, this is not three years later from when we first saw the ship at the beginning of the movie. It's three years from the scene we just saw of Kirk you know going up to the academy or whatever um yeah, Eric Bana. not a huge fan off or always. But his little just facial contortions here sells the rage. Look at that without having to say anything. I really liked what they did with the um, Romulans. Got to keep the pointed ears, but they use tattoos on the face instead of makeup, which is good to distinguishing them from the Klingons. Although there's a little bit on the forehead there, but they look slightly less alien, slightly more Vulcan, which is very important in this movie because of the destruction of
1: Vulcan. Right, so the
0: elaborate plan is to not only destroy Vulcan, but to force future Spock, who's coming through here. One of the coolest Starship designs I ever Oh man. The spinning warp engine so cool. He might be going like warp 20, which has never existed before. Because future Spock is coming from a future that's even will well beyond next generation in Deep Space Nine in those movies. From a timetable standpoint, so you can imagine the technology jump um, okay so this for me is great as so many of the scenes have been i've been praising them this is where the movie takes off because we see really the bulk or you know or at least the bulk of sort of the top four or five characters working together already at the academy you know there's some coincidental nature to it but that's the whole point that's how these you know And how these various different people come together, and so you know, Kirk as as a lusty, uh, you know, nymphomaniac or whatever, is hinted at with William Shatner, and he's definitely a ladies' man in the old Star Trek. But they really go for it here. The green is gray. Um, I think Gamora is green, ironically played by Zoe Saldana, who we're about to see again, luckily. She's green as Gamora in Guardians of the Galaxy. They're both practical makeup. I think they both look good. I think Gamora looks a little bit better. Um, You don't you don't really think about the paint on Zoe, whereas you're definitely thinking about the paint on this particular character. He's very perky, (laughs) Um, and you know it's implied that they've been hooking up for a while, but you know now they're going to make it seem like it's just another guy, which is you know typical Kirk who slept with tons of women gets upset that she slept with tons of men up here we go zoe saldana in lingerie and the thing is zoe's so beautiful and one of the reasons i said i'm more a zoe guy than a scarlet guy is because you know it's it's less distracting than scarlet sometimes you just can't help being ridiculously sexy Oh, oh i love that Zoe just totally scurrying with him here because this is a total simulation. They don't even try and sell that they're at a real starship. Uh, But but the transition from the last scene in her dorm room to this is great. And, you know, he's done this numerous times, as I said, and they're hinting, you know, uh, very strongly already that he's figured something out because no one's beaten this test. That's the whole point. The Kobayashi Maru is from the Star Trek movies, maybe even earlier, And Spock will explain why it's meant to be an unwinnable test later. But Kirk's approach to winning this, while it's cheating in a way, he points out the whole thing's a cheat, or at least it's rigged. In his difference of opinion about, you know, sort of his disrespect for this versus Spock, who designed it, uh, (laughs) the Apple... Yeah, you know, protagonists eating and smiling and cracking jokes during, you know, dangerous situations or apparently dangerous situations is amazing. Up there, doesn't know what's going on. This is great. He's so cocky.
1: Are they? Are there shields still? I
0: just boosted the sound a little bit let's not waste ammunition that's the thing he doesn't just beat it he humiliates spock by making it look so easy the editing in this movie is so great I, I don't know what happened in into darkness i wonder if his being courted to do star wars distracted him or whether there was just a weak script it was such a noticeable drop-off from this movie and while i'm not a big fan of jj i've always respected him and he nailed this I'm a fan of his just from this movie. It was just disappointing. I'm worried about the third. Right, so now we got Spock and, and Kirk a few feet from each other. Um, Tyler Perry's coming up here. He loves cameos and like, sci-fi movies. He was in uh, Guardians of the Galaxy as well. I believe as one of the pilots. Right, so this is the whole ethics thing. Starfleet has their own code. Really, the f- the second movie got derailed almost immediately because they tried to bring in the Prime Directive, which is an interesting notion from the original series and very often used um, in Next Generation, which says, you know, we don't interfere with inferior te- techn- technologically inferior cultures, no matter what. Yeah, but Kirk, ha- Kirk saves the planet. But they only can save the planet by revealing themselves. So, what was he supposed to do? Allow the extinction? And so, in this movie, they really get the ethical um, debate right. But, bringing in the Prime Directive, which is pretty irrational, um, even in Next Generation, which I love, the lengths to which they go, even to let races kill themselves, um, even if those races have potential to not die, uh, you know, de th- the second movie almost immediately. As I mentioned, you know, Christopher Pike his, the guy who brought him into Starfleet, who we saw before at the bar, uh, the older guy who, you know, worshipped his dad, all the things that Pike says he loves about Kirk in this movie, he, he really criticizes in the second, and Kirk briefly loses his command of a ship because of what he did, and it's not really rational, the explanation, and then he, you know, Pike gets killed very quickly, spoiler alert, and, you know, then he gets the ship back, and the whole thing is just clumsy. You know, this is one of those movies like Winter Soldier where, you know, it, it hits on every shot, every line. I can't stress the editing enough. Editing is so underrated. Small things like that, like showing McCoy t- you know, taking in the situation, which is important because McCoy kind of tries to mediate uh, against his will between them later in the movie. Right, so convenient that, you know, all the regular starships are gone and you only have cadets, and after are three years, you know, roughly of training, some slightly more, some slightly less, um, you know, they got to they gotta do it. But they have Pike as captain, so that holds it together, at least until they figure out their own shit. But you had to do it because, you know, they're rebooting the whole series, and so you need the origin stories, which we get in all sci-fi, fantasy, and comic book movies. But J.J. rightly recognized that they could tell the origin story through the plot, which just isn't enough. It's usually they spend the first third to half of these first movies of a series just setting up the backstory without pushing the plot forward. This pushes it forward right away, um, I guess for 36 minutes in. So i would be a quarter way through, and this is where the, you know, the adventure starts. We're already invested in these characters, or I am, at least in the four that we spent time with. Yeah, this is he's humbled. He's truly humbled. I love how Pine plays that. He, he's not angry. He knows he's screwed up. Even if he was right to question Spock's program and, and, and fuck with it. Oh, this is great, but I can't leave him behind. Um, e- even if Pine, in my opinion, was right from sort of an ethical standpoint with Kirk beating the Kobayashi Maru, he really looked humbled back there. And, like, even if he was right, he maybe shouldn't have done it for this very reason, which he couldn't have seen coming. Um, Okay, so earlier, um, McCoy, who's called Bones, but Bones is never explained in any of the Star Trek properties, somehow it took until 2009 for Carl Urban, a.k.a. Aomer, a.k.a. Dr. McCoy, he comes up with the Bones thing. He says, "'My divorced wife left me with nothing but my Bones.'" He came up with that. I've seen the commentary. I mean, what a huge character point. Comes from the actors, and that's why you need actors like this. Zoe Saldana owns every role she's in. Chris Pine and Quinto, at least in these movies, own the roles. (laughs) So there's a running gag of him just pumping them full of meds. uh, Which... uh, you know, I like that it's painful because by the next generation, technologically, they have little, you know, s- synthetic shots, vaccines, or whatever that don't hurt. But you do hear that whooshing noise, but they don't hurt. I like that these hurt, and you know, McCoy's try- fi- you know, constantly trying to find a cocktail that keeps him alive. And you know, but he's sick enough from a visual standpoint; like he <laughs> looks here, um, to you know, to convince people to let him stay as his patient pine, pine does a great job of looking in pain and suffering really lead characters in these kind of movies you need that quality um i think chris pratt has that uh i hope they explore that more in galaxy he he, is, he uses the gun so much chris pratt as star lord um Peter Quill he uses the gun so much; he doesn't have a ton of hand-to-hand combat. I think when you have a cocky, you know, leader of a team in these movies, they they got to fight and get their ass kicked a lot. You're not going to root for a guy who always wins. You root for the guy with, with the heart to you know to stay in a fight even when he's outnumbered and outmatched. Okay, this is an amazing shot of the shipyards. Um, Battlestar does this a little bit in the in their movie Razor. This is the best-looking shipyard ever, and yeah, and the hidden reveal that took so much thinking and time and creativity and previs and all sorts of stuff to figure out how a huge starship can appear out of nowhere. And it is beautiful. It's it's thicker, so compared to the Enterprise, which is a little bit more sleeker and thin in the original series, and even in Next Generation, I like that it's a little bit more bulky. Yeah, coming in through the butt. Um, I th- next Generation, at least, the shuttle bay is at the front of the ship, I believe. Or at least the front of the lower part, below
1: the, the saucer.
0: I feel like I'm leaking. I've never caught that before. So the pointy-eared bastard thing, you know, another Lord of the Rings connection. Gimli the dwarf, who claims to hate elves, but is, you know quickly f- f- falls in bromance with Legolas but he's always, you know, making pointy-eared jokes or racial remarks. Uh, uh, yeah, th- okay, so that shot of Spock going up the uh, the elevator and coming out with the same shot uh, seemingly onto the bridge. I I forget how they did that. That's so hard to do because he's really g- going from one level to another of the ship. You know, in in all the other Star Trek properties, they see you going in that thing, but then there's a cut, and then there's another cut when they leave the uh, the elevators. What are those called? The elevator thingies? I forget. Yeah, it's just it's it's bulkier, it's thicker, it's got body. I like it. This is awesome. Always great seeing a million ships warp at the same time. I think they did this with the Wolf Three Five Nine battle against the Borg. Either in one of the movies or Deep Space Nine. Yeah, this is great. This is so that he goes hyperspace. This is how ships go into hyperspace in Star Wars. And JJ was always open from the beginning that he wanted to do Star Wars. And so he took the Star Trek job, having not grown up on Star Trek. Um, and you can tell. He forces some of the Star Trek-isms, though he didn't write it, I don't believe, so the writers, I assume, are more familiar. But you still have to implement it as a director. <laughs> and there is Harold from Harold and Kumar. Gotta love it. He's great in this as Sulu. I never thought he was a great actor. He's very funny. Well, that egg all. And the look at Pike's face. It's just like a little kid. Let's punch it. Brand new toy. He thinks they're going for a joyride. But they're not, and, and it's actually you know it's Sulu's screwing up the initial warp that puts them behind the rest of the fleet, and that's what ultimately saves them. That's how narratives are made, people. Here comes another painful injection. <laughs> so much more interesting. And I get why they don't do it in the ship, but in the movie you gotta make it painful. So anyway, so yeah, so it, when the ships jump or, or go into warp, it looks like hyperspace from Star Wars more than going into, uh, warp from, um, uh, from the shows, it's similar, in terms of the sort of light, um, refraction or whatever, <laughs> this is great, this guy is part Russian, uh, this actor, I can't remember his name, he's a really good, young actor, the weak, the weak, we- we- you can't say V, you know, you've all these aliens with alien languages, but they can't interpret a Russian accent, so, you know, it, I'm assuming everyone looks like oh, this is a Star Trek fan, but th- one of the things that made the original series brilliant is that it was multiracial, it was multinational. You had people from all over the world, different colors. You had Ahura, the first major black woman, who, um, you know, was, was <laughs> obviously a big deal to have a black woman on network television in that kind of role, Ahura, that is the original Ahura, who I think passed away recently, sadly. Um, and But but having Chekhov there as a Russian and then never comment on the Cold War, but this was right in the heart of the Cold War, was a very, you know, strong political statement by Roddenberry about coexistence and his opposition to everything behind the Cold War. And the Starfleet really reflects an imperial civilization that really operates differently from the mutually assured destruction of civilizations that we live among, uh, and that were so prominent, obviously, in the Cold War between the Soviet Russians and the Americans. So the whole lightning storm thing that writing's a little sloppy they could I know they go out of their way to avoid uh start you know being overly um star trekky in this movie in terms of technology techno Babble, but a little techno Babble here more than lightning storm <laughs> you know. Just the fact that you know there couldn't be any kind of other lightning storms that would be unrelated to, to what happened to his dad and that Pike, who studied his dad closely, wouldn't pick up on this. But it doesn't matter because the character stuff is so great. And 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 this was, you know, Ahura has, you know, <laughs> pretended to dislike him, but really has liked Kirk from the beginning, just from a, a, a friendship standpoint. And that's where you see her character is so sweet and that, you know, She'll make jokes about him, and she'll run him down sarcastically, but when the shit hits the fan, she's in. And even in the Spock conflict, where Spock ejects him from the ship and tries to get rid of him, but Horde never definitively uh goes against Kirk, even though she loves and is with Spock. Another thing I love is their relationship. Oh, man. We'll get to that. So, you know, this is like the Borg. You have one giant ship... That's way more technologically enhanced that can take on a whole fleet of ships that are also advanced but not level Oh, I love the okay. These the these panning shots around the bridge. So the, part of the problem with the shows, and this was because of budget, was that all everything was shot from the front and everyone was looking forward on the bridge. And then they'd move you know, they'd flip back and you'd see them looking at a view screen, which is just a green screen, talking to Romulan or Klingon or something. They still look forward in this movie in terms of the bridge, in terms of they're all facing mostly in the same direction. They don't go to Battlestar route, which was so cool, hard to do, but they, they just nailed how to do it so it didn't take too much time, which was to make the CIC, um, which was basically the bridge. Of Battlestar, though, doesn't have a view screen or anything like that. Um, it's more like a submarine. It's in the middle of the ship. Uh, it's getting all its stuff via computers and computer screens. They made it very three-dimensional. There's a fully 360 set, I believe. But they do make this one just because of the filming and the way the actors face each other. You get so many more angles from the bridge. Oh, man. Zoe Saldana right there. That's a classic shot. Yeah, and it's, it's important to establish her as one of the smartest. She's basically the second smartest person on the ship after Spock. Um, although she has skills that he doesn't have, you know, And she I, I missed earlier when she pouts to Spock. You know, Spock was trying not to play favorites, so didn't put her on the Enterprise with him in order not to play favorites. And she goes, "No, I'm on the Enterprise," and he goes, "No, well, I must have made a mistake. I guess you're on the Enterprise." And she just smiles and says, "You know, she got her way. That's what happens. You know, you, you gotta. Hey, if you're with horror you're with Zoe and You gotta let her get her way sometimes, especially something like being with her on the same ship." But, she, you know, she's mentioning her qualifications, which she already knows, which includes, like, she says something like a sensitive oral talent or something like that. It's just very much a, a uh, oral sex reference. Which is great. Oh, man. Right, so this is the Wolf 359 thing where the Borg just destroys the entire Starfleet. Now... With the Borg destroying the Starfleet, after, if you watch the original series, but especially if you're just watching season, season, season of, of all the very Star Trek season, uh, series, and then you have an event like this. It, you know it's actually way scarier because you've seen how powerful the ships are. We really haven't seen how powerful the ships are. They've been getting kicked. Their asses kicked by these same Romulans for, you know, 50 years or something. But the debris field is great. You know, it's, it's like Han Solo going through the asteroid belt, but it's obviously much harder to steer the ship. Yeah, the way, as scary and huge and spiky as the, the uh, future Romulan ship is, they do something with the sound and the cameras that even before the black hole stuff happens at the end, it's always moving and just menacing. Never static shots of the enemy ship. I love their very physical-looking torpedoes. You know, they couldn't do go full-on bullets but they decided to make the Photon Torpedoes Photon, but in like a casing, a physical casing, which makes it way more tactile than just the little reddish-orange you know, blips of light in uh, the next generation. I mean, this guy's like Ronan. Totally one-dimensional villain. Um, he's arguably somewhat better motivated, or more fleshed-out motivations hello oh this is great i love Boto this hi christopher i'm nero <laughs> nice to meet you um nero's so cocky like like right in it's more subtle though obviously yeah i mean the thing that doesn't make sense is he's so pissed about his wife being killed or his kids being killed um, but the way they tie Spock together in the two various timelines is awesome. Leonard Nimoy, rest in peace. God, what a brilliant actor. Spock's probably the best character ever in Star Trek, I, I think people would acknowledge, just because he was so different. You've had characters like Kirk before as brilliant as Shatner was. Alright, so this obviously is a direct mirror of the beginning of the movie on the kelvin when the captain of that ship um is forced to go over to quote-unquote negotiate and just gets killed here they they torture pike so he stays alive though we don't find that out until later yep so spock it spock and kirk agreeing here is very important because it shows that they a can agree and b it shows that um kirk can be logical you know, Even though his ultimate choice at the climax to just go after the Romulan ship is illogical on the surface, he has that capability. And having them... Also because he already seems like a usurper. Like, where did this guy come from? Spock has way more experience and is way higher in rank, at least for now. But for Spock to agree with him after... But that's the thing. It had to be Kirk being right and Spock wrong about what was going on with this lightning storm. Um... And then it's the beginning of respect for Kirk's perceptiveness, if not intellect, by Spock. I like the sidekick. He's great. He's from other stuff. He looks so familiar. Okay, so this red ball of goo makes no sense because if they need a tiny drop to create a massive singularity or black hole or whatever, I mean, that huge... Ball of the red matter, as they call it. Another thing where they should have gone a little more techno bevel. I mean, I get why hardcore fans were dissatisfied with this. It, you know, they, they tried so hard to cut the techno bevel in some places, and then they use it in other wor- other places where it's less necessary. Doing something cooler than red matter in a big red ball. Um, but the visual is expertly executed, and it is a cool idea that one drop that's so powerful. You could basically swallow a, a solar system with the whole ball, one would think. Um, just to backtrack, the notion that Spock is already a first officer while Kirk is still a cadet is sold so subtly, you almost don't notice it until he mentions it openly here. That, right, I'm not the captain, you aren't? Right, uh, I wonder if that got written in the annals of you know, George Kirk's death and, and what happened with the Kelvin. He's just copying the line or it's just, you know, convenient writing to mirror the earlier scene. It's probably the latter, but I'm totally fine with that kind of stuff. In fact I encourage that kind of stuff. Mirror stuff. The Matrix is all mirroring, it's all callbacks. I don't care if it's heavy handed at times you gotta do it. Alright, so to conveniently kill the actual doctor on board. This is great. Right, this is great. McCoy's not like, okay, cool. I'm, I'm number one now. Or, or, or great, sounds good. He says, yeah, tell me something I don't know. He's already thinking about how to save that situation, not what rank he is. So so this guy you already know is going to die. But it's great because he's wearing a red sh- suit, which is called Back to the Red Shirts. So the notion that the original Star Trek was you had to have some people die. Um, but you couldn't have any of the main characters die. So you had all these you know, low-rank um you know, guys who are just muscle come down to the planets and then the planets end up being dangerous and they get killed and they all had red shirts. And so it's be- red shirts has actually become a term for all epic sci-fi fantasy and other epic kind of movies for, you know, cannon fodder, good guy cannon fodder basically. But you know, because that guy immediately sounds like just a total lunatic moron, you know, it's, it's, it's a wink in the best sense. The suits look great. Okay, so this whole scene coming up where they're free-falling, and it's just the whooshing, and there's no music, uh, and the whole battle on the drill, even though it doesn't accomplish what they mean to accomplish, is amazing filmically. I mean, they never do stuff like this in the other Star Trek movies, but it's completely consistent with technology. Yeah, even now, Pike's a little mischievous-looking. I love him. They, they totally mishandled him at the second. Maybe they shouldn't have killed him. They shouldn't have had him go against Kirk. They should have had him side with Kirk, right? This, this here. I commented on the Avengers when Thor's dropping out of the helicarrier in the glass container that was con- containing Loki. Uh, but it was a very J.G. Abrams shot that was that shot was shot like this. So the red guy's already lower, you know. So it, although he's not here, yeah, it's a little inconsistency. On the on the screen, it showed the the the, the red shirt was was below the other kids. Look at this! So, I mean, I had and this is why I think Star Wars Episode Seven is going to be at least very entertaining and f- fun to watch and well executed from a visual filmic standpoint. Because J J Abrams. So this is two thousand nine, but. There have been numerous movies since this, including many of the Marvel movies that don't look as good. I mean, I love Guardians of the Galaxy. It's just not as visceral as this. Abrams really knows what he's doing. I mean, yeah, if you weren't ready to hire him for Star Wars before this, then, um, but considering how much he loves Star Wars and the fact that it's not the biggest budget ever, it's actually like $220 which is less than Age of Ultron and, and the Avatar movies. Yeah, this guy's a total lunatic. It's great. What does he think was going to happen? I love this brief misdirection. Oh, maybe he's going to make it. Can he hold on? Oh, the parachute. They just kill him. Never see that in Star Trek movies. So that's the other thing. I mean, we're going to see deaths in Star Wars. In the original Star Wars, like, there's a lot of implied deaths. We do see some pilots die and a couple Ewoks die, or an Ewok die. But, you know, because the stormtroopers aren't humanized... Their deaths are made completely irrelevant, especially because they're bad guys. We're going to see stormtroopers, you know, the people behind the stormtroopers in the new movie. One of the main characters played by John Boyega is a black stormtrooper who, you know, it's pretty open that he becomes a good guy relatively early on, it seems like, in, um, in the new Star Wars movie. Okay, so this is all amazing. A- anything where you can see the ground, I mean, it's just seamless. You really think they're on that trail. And this is where the real Star Wars adventure stuff comes in—the hand-to-hand combat, against all odds. People coming at—I mean, the, the the fact that they came out of the, of the drill with those little hinged doors is like Jabba the Hutt's uh, thing. Um, Jabba the Hutt's little, you know, hover carrier, or whatever the, the, that Luke and company take down. Oh, oh almost, almost uh, same fate as the red shirt. Oh, yeah. He said he was a fencer. That's his training, but... Oh, hero shot right there. Dude, this... The guy, Harold from Harold from Cooper here. I forget his name. He must have been so pumped for that shot. Oh, man. yeah, the stunt stuff is brilliant. You know, he, he they're fighting with swords. You, know, you had to have Kirk just just getting pummeled with, with fists. And, of course, it's Sulu that saves him. Kirk actually doesn't take down anyone, as far as I can tell. Sulu takes down both of the guys. Right. This is. I never love this device. The stepping on the hands, but it's worth it because the green screen shot that that doesn't look like a green. That I mean, it, that looks like he's above Vulcan. It's totally seamless. Um, what else was I pra Oh, I was praising um, the Lord of the Rings movies, which which were well before this, which really after the first Lord of the Rings movie, the green screen was almost unnoticeable in the ways that you still you know aren't done as well in in movies ten plus years after Lord of the Rings it's like it's like Sam killing the goblin in the tower of of you know, and he's killing a goblin here basically with the green blood in the ears oh man it's great that's the thing I always loved the Romulans because they are like in the Vulcans because they're like elves and there's there's a lot of similarities actually between the elves and and the Vulcans. Um, and even the Romulans, they never make it fantasy, but, you know, they will fight hand-to-hand with weapons like we just saw. Klingons do, too. Yeah, Also, Klingons were really mishandled in the second movie. It, you, you're so pumped when they end up on the Klingon homeworld, but then, you know, Khan, who was played brilliantly by Benedict Cumberbatch, it wasn't his fault, and he, he was great in the movie. He was the, the highlight by far. He, like, takes out all the Klingons in that thing. So they make the ship look really wet, um, which is a nice change from just fog. Now, they do have some fog. This is great. This shot here. This looks so real. That the, see, the, that last five seconds, like up, and then f- f- eye to eye with the, the thing, with the bomb, the, the singularity bomb, and then watching it go down, is totally Star Wars. I mean, we're going to see shit like that constantly in the movie, and it's, it's going to be fucking great. I almost hope Star Wars is just super entertaining and well done, and not, you know, uh, some groundbreaking work. I don't think they're going for that.
1: Yeah, I mean, talking
0: about singularity is like the most sciency thing they say in the whole movie, other than the trans warp, uh, trans warp, whatever. We'll see you later with Scotty. Which is way too convenient, but it's so well executed. And Simon Pegg as as Scotty. Oh, I can't wait. He's. I like how they hold off their relationship, but you know they really, hold, yeah, they really hold off the relationship. We know that there's something between them based on her, you know, basically demanding in a very girlfriend-esque way to for her to get her way to be in the enterprise, but you don't see the hugging and the kissing for a while. And it's very restrained. And actually, they're developing relationships. Zachary Quinto and Zoe Zaldana really sell their relationship. It, that a really, you know, even though she's not technically human, but a very human, natural, strong, but, you know, feminine uh, person. Like her would be attracted to someone like Spock. Especially, be, especially when she can get through the exterior to his human, more human side in terms of emotions, and it's, that's actually the conflict between them Second second movies, that he's constantly willing to sacrifice his life for quote-unquote logical reasons, but, you know, it's selfish in a way because he's not thinking of her and the other people who love him. And so, th- that's, so Khan, as the villain, played by Benedict Cumberbatch and their relationship, her and Spock, Um, are the two things that make Into Darkness, for me, rewatchable enough. Especially, you just get over the plot points. It's like, you know, it's like Matrix Revolutions. You know, sometimes you just gotta watch it for the entertainment value, despite the flaws. This, I think, is not new to this movie. I I think... In the newer Star Trek properties, like Next Generation, they've pulled shit like this. I could be wrong. Or at least it's implied that you can beam while moving. But the way they slam is totally unrealistic because it it looks like they're coming from the top of the transporter. But I would get that the force of it, even if they're only a foot above the pad there, would break the glass, which is great.
1: Oh, I love this.
0: Watch what he does right here. I don't. I, they must have told him, right this, this. The crouching, get in combat readiness position, even while beaming. I mean, he's so on top of his game. But Kirk is forced to tear him down later because Spock is acting logically, but not rationally. And we'll get to that later because I'm, you know, I, I'm a big fan that logic and, and rationality are not the same thing, even though they do inter um, uh, overlap sometimes. Okay, so the cave thing here looks beautiful and so it's sort of the weirdness of his mom being there who seemed to be sidelined in their society but she's in with the high council and that they all managed to get there so quickly because of the you know and, and they're communing to their gods and don't really know what's going on it's clunky from like a logistical standpoint or or from a me- me- mechanical standpoint you know, and the fact that she's the only one to fall off the cliff. She, she happens to be standing two feet below. They kill just enough of them so they can fit on, like, the five or six pads of the teleporter. I mean, it's all just way too convenient. But because of the emotional arc and performance of Spock and his mom and dad, um, who, by the way, Wynonna writer as Spock's mom, I love. I, I wish they hadn't killed her. They've, they have great chemistry. Right. Like, move back. Move back. Right. I mean, I think the notion is that they, they don't see this coming. And her best chance, like we just saw, you can be beamed up while moving. But because he's beaming up people on the ground, and we just saw how hard it was for him to beam up, and how long it takes to beam up people who are falling. But just for that image of her falling, and then Spock
1: reaching out.
0: And this is this is it. Yeah, and you needed Kirk... Um, and someone like Sulu and Chekhov to um, to witness this. It's one thing for the planet to be dying, but you add your mom
1: getting killed two seconds ago.
0: I'll take back what I said before. Spock does start acting illogically, or at least tainted by emotion. Um, they try and sell that Kirk's Choice at the end, is a gut feeling to contrast with the cold logic of the Vulcans, but, you know, when we get there, we can debate that maybe it was actually more logical and that Spock doesn't sort of get his logic back until later, and ironically only gets it back because of his relationship with Kirk, who he sees as, you know, the the opposite of reason, of logic, of, uh, you know, dispassionate analysis, which he is, but... You know, the show really questions what logic means. And that's one of the many philosophical parts of the movie, uh, of the Star Trek series. I really didn't watch the original series. And it's hard to watch them because the effects are so bad. Um, and some of the writing cheesy. But I grew up on Next Generation. I, I also really like Deep Space Nine. But I did see, I have seen probably multiple times, all of the or the six original Star Trek movies, meaning the six movies with the original cast. That came out over, like, a 15-year period. Um, the first two uh, movies with the Next Generation cast were very good. The last two, not so much. Here we go. This this gives me chills every time. Ugh. Zoe Saldana just has chemistry with everyone. Right? She... she ugh. God, she plays this perfectly. I know you want to talk. Look at that t- That touch to the face. Why don't people do that more? It's the best. It's the most... Intimate thing you can do. He doesn't do anything. He's Oh, there he goes. He lets himself go. For just a brief moment. No tears. All right, let's see if she goes straight to it. What do you need? She's, she. She. This is the thing. And this is why they're also attracted to each other. Yes, they're very different, but they are can-do people. They're solutions-oriented, even in these horrible emotional situations. All right, I need everyone to continue performing admirably in right... Here with her hands often on the face, uh, and her going. I wish you had given me more to do, but I understand. You know that you can't quantify your feeling right now. And this is it. This is the best place to seal their relationship. Exactly halfway through the movie. After all this has happened, it's you know the writing and, and execution of this movie. As I keep saying, it's just perfect. Um, uh, that I don't care that it's really a Star Trek Star Wars hybrid. I don't because the characters are close enough to their original selves from a spiritual standpoint, like I'm always talking about, like with The Lord of the Rings. Um, Let's put it this way. Having seen a little bit of the original series, but having seen all the movies of the original cast, Shatner, Nimoy, um, uh, George Takai, etc., having seen them in the movies, there's no character that seems out of character in this movie, even though I'm not an expert. And even the Next Generation movies that didn't really hit are still fun to watch because the cast is so fabulous. And they never make the characters really go out of character, even in the, the subpar Next Generation movies. I would love to see a Deep Space Nine movie, but that's never happening. The concept behind Deep Space Nine was better than the execution, in my opinion. It's not really their fault. It just They didn't upgrade the technology fast enough. It should have looked better than the Next Generation because it came later, but never... But Pike, other than just killing this role as an actor and his chemistry with Kirk and the the rest of the cast, feels like an old-school Star Trek guy, at least from Next Generation. I mean, he really feels like a Star Trek. You know, one of the elders, the elder captains, like Captain Picard, played amazingly by Patrick Stewart. I miss Patrick Stewart. I guess we get him in the X-Men movies. Right, so he claims that he doesn't speak for the Empire, that they stand apart, because in the future the Empire is destroyed. He knows that the Empire is still existing now. You know, he claims to, to want retribution as his main motivation, but then he says he wants to also destroy all the Federation, and so Romulus can be free. And of course... You know, I mean, couldn't he have at least sent a message before all of this to the Kurt Romulus saying, you might not believe me, but I'm a Romulus of the future, and this star is going to go supernova, and so we should spread out and colonize other planets. Um, It's not clear why they haven't colonized other planets the way the Federation has. Klingons definitely have colonized other planets, so they don't talk about it much. So this is a direct callback to uh, Wrath of Khan, which Star Trek Into Darkness, the second Star Trek reboot movie I've been talking about with Bennett Cumberbatch, he reprises the role of Khan with a bunch of twists. Some work, some don't. But the thing through the mouth, I believe they use almost that exact thing in, in Star Trek 2, Wrath of Khan, to torture slash get information out of, uh, I think, Sulu and one of the other officers. I can't remember. I love he's in the chair. Out of the chair. It's like Ghibli in the steward's chair at the end of Return to the Cake smoking his pipe. No respect. Right. And, and this is why Spock losing his temper in a little bit um, works, because they needed to continue to sell that his logic is functioning on some level, even though it's more flawed now. Because logic can only work based on calculating the possible outcomes of a number of assumptions or premises. That's the basis of logic. It's, it's almost mathematical. And that is the whole conflict. Even when Kirk is acting logical, even from Spock's definition of logical, he you know, he has a much more holistic view of ways of operating, especially as the commanding officer, and that's why he is ultimately better as captain. And once he's established as captain in this movie, as well as in the original series, you never question him as captain.
1: Meaning Spock never questions him again as captain.
0: Right, we must gather with the rest of Starfleet. You sort of would think Spock would want revenge. Um, But I think the idea here is that he recognizes that he's about to lose control because of everything that just happened with his mom and his homeworld. And he's overcompensating, which is actually leading his logic to twist in on itself and not be as, as correct, if you will, as it is usually. Okay, so here's what they s- in alternate reality. Selena so Saldana handled that line as best as she could. That's not her fault. You needed someone to say that. So this is the techno babble. I think the reason they were so so overly restrained on techno babble, the rest of the movie before and after this, is because of this scene. But Kirk doesn't care about the time continuum stuff. It you know, and strategically, he's right not to think too hard about it. Now he's forced to think about it later when he. Um, Meets future Spock, letter Nimoy Spock. Right, he's more angry about hunting him down, at least on the surface, than than Spock is. And I think there's a part of Kirk that's angry on Spock's behalf. And um, here we go. The Vulcan, the uh, death grip, not death grip, whatever they call it. I love it. It immediately get him off the ship. Boop convenient that the planet is right there and that it's a nasty but survivable planet and that old Spock happens to be there they kind of connect it by saying that's the moon where you know Nero wanted Spock to watch Vulcan be destroyed um, and so again the the exact mechanics don't never add up and he doesn't try to and so that's why I think it works better do what works for the characters and the plot and the action and the entertainment value don't worry about consistency. I think movies that try and be too consistent, they end up being more criticized at their inconsistencies. It's like Battlestar Galactica. The Battlestar Galactica, up until most of the third season, with the exception of a few episodes, really never deviated from its internal rules. Um, which was that it takes place in the past. They are human. Um... They want to go to Earth to escape the Cylons, and robots that look like men and women trying to kill them as revenge for enslaving them. But it's, it is... It's, see, the thing with Battlestar is, the whole idea behind it with the creators and the writers, who many of them had military experience, was to make it feel like a military drama, not a sci-fi epic, even though it has, obviously, a lot of sci-fi epic elements. And so, for them, it was less about techno babble because they openly avoided techno babble. Because the creator of the, the the new Battlestar Galactica, which is so amazing, Ron Moore, was a writer on Star Trek: The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine. But because of his military background and being a creative dude who likes challenges, here comes the uh, Star Wars Episode One, where a big creature gets eaten by another bigger creature, or gets eaten by another big creature. Ah, uh, the food chain. Um. So, anyway, so Ron Moore wanted to make the anti-Star Trek, which Battlestar certainly was in terms of violence and darkness and moral ambiguity and just really dark scenarios. And and I think the what, what happened was there were so many balls in the air in terms of both the characters and the mythos behind Battlestar that they spent way too much time, especially in the second half of the fourth and final season, trying to logically connect all these historical events. They should have just left it a mystery. In those episodes where it's just, you know, various people on the Galactica, whether Cylon or Human, who are at that point living together mostly peacefully, um, or at least there's a, a, a tense, uh, you know, non-aggressive, regression pact. they They really wanted to please the fans, and they ended up uh uh actually um making some of the fans dissatisfied <laughs> because you know they they tried so hard that it didn't work. This guy looks okay, I think the monsters will definitely look better yeah i mean it it, it still looks Lord of the Rings level two and a half day. But even though this was a fun scene, it was never supposed to be a major part of the movie in terms of screen time or or plot relevance, or plot relevancy. But I I think six years after this, with a bigger budget and just a bigger project, the the, the monsters and aliens uh, will be better in uh, Star Wars Episode Seven plus... One of the great things about Episode 7, is we already know very clearly, J.J. Abrams wants to go back to the original trilogy in terms of practical effects and practical aliens. There's going to be a lot of costumes, a lot of real sets and locations. It's not going to be all CGI like the Star Wars prequels, which were disappointing to say the least. William Shatner is an egomaniac, I think, which is probably part of the reason he hasn't, um, appeared back in the Star Trek movies, although he did play a key role in being dead, and then being briefly reborn, and then being dead again in the first movie of the Star Trek Next Generation crew, where he was in a, a a, a Nexus time loop, basically, where they thought he'd been killed in a, you know, lightning storm-esque event. In that movie, it turns out he's just stuck in a dream, basically, and Captain Picard has to pull him out of the dream and Shatner does a great job. No, you're the captain. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I like that. There's not a whole device here of Kirk being like, "I don't believe you. Give me some proof." What was my mother's name? You know, to prove that he's this guy's really Spock, but. He just sees it, you know, I like... And the thing is, Quinto really does look like a young Leonard anymore. He does. It's a perfect fit, I, you know? It's, it's, it? And actually, baby... Or, not baby, little boy Spock from the beginning, who the who beats up the kids making fun of him, he also looks like Zachary Quinto. The only thing that doesn't match up is Kirk's younger self with the dyed blonde hair kid, but the kid's so great. So, yeah, I mean, you know, even Guardians of the Galaxy... It had a lot of cosmic effects, but it was often stills. Um, you know, there there were space battles, but it, there was something sort of static about Guardians. It almost felt a little bit—I hate to say it—like the Star Wars prequels. It was way better done, and way cooler, and way more fun to watch because the characters and the writing were like a you know, <laughs> basically a nine out of ten for the most part, as opposed to the Star Wars prequels. It's a little bit of a little too much color, uh, and a little too static with the space stuff. I I didn't mind with Guardians. And that was sort of the point. It's sort of supposed to look a little retro. J.J. J. Abrams wants very futuristic, but also very practical and old school mixed together. Joss Whedon has a similar aesthetic, I would say. For me personally, although J.J.'s probably a little bit wealthier, You know, there's more Whedon properties that I like, I guess I would say, than J.J. Abrams' properties. And I think Whedon doing a Star Wars movie would be
1: amazing. I'm not sure he would do it.
0: So this is actually scientifically sound in the sense of, you know, because a a black hole slash wormhole is such a heavy gravity well, you know, time passes way slower for people in those gravity wells and people outside. So, you know, in their mind, they just went in one side of a wormhole and out the other, which was actually a really cool part of Deep Space Nine was it's not that they introduced wormholes, but they introduced wormholes as a major part of the Star Trek universe, which allowed them to go way further out than they had before, bringing new alien races and stuff. Some worked better than others, but the wormhole stuff was fantastic. And so, you know... it would be almost instantaneous. It wouldn't be this long, twisting thing. I love it. he just drops to his knees. Um, um, so, uh, anyways, the fact that Spock would enter even a second after them would end up, as he says, as years between because of the gravity well. Because when Spock enters the gravity well, the other ship, the huge Romulan ship, is already on the other side. So they're back to relatively normal time, from our perspective on Earth, because time is relative, but for Spock it would be passing slower, therefore a couple years would go by, and that's why they had to wait 26 years or whatever for Spock to come through, even though they they entered the wormhole almost simultaneously.
1: The emotional
0: side of the mind meld is from the original stuff. It's used great in um, the final... uh, Star Trek Six: The Undiscovered Country, which is probably my favorite. It, might be, it was partially just because it's the first Star Trek thing I ever saw, and it was that that got me into Next Generation, because that came out when Next Generation was, like, in its third or fourth season. But the final Star Trek movie with the original cast, The Undiscovered Country, where, you know... Uh, <laughs> where humans and Klingons are finally making peace, and that carries over into the later Star Trek series. But there are some Klingons and humans who want the war to continue for numerous reasons, economic, political, and otherwise. And Kirk and um, his people get framed, and uh, it, it's, it is is really fun movie. Um And there's a really evil Klingon, with shaved head and eye patch, who loves Shakespeare and is quoting Shakespeare. and It's on the nose, but the actor's great. But th- when they find out who the traitors are, one of the young women, who, who is a Vulcan, I believe, or half-Vulcan, they find to be a traitor, it was one of the officers on the bridge. Spock does a mind meld with her. I think it's her. I think it's that movie. And and she is emotionally affected and disturbed by it. So that, that is a carryover that I like. Again, like the shots to the neck, you got to make it painful. You've got to make it visceral. Yeah, I like that McCoy. Yeah, totally. Here we go. Exactly. Yeah, that's what I should have said. It's not the between logical and rational. The Kentucky Derby. This is great. The stallion must first be broken. Yeah, he's so condescending towards everyone. Yeah. So you know, so what McCoy's is saying is, you know, the right thing is not always the logical thing. And again, this is the, both the strength and weakness of logic because if you work into your logical premises that the right thing must be considered as part of the logical process, then they could coexist, and so actually, the Spock logic thing it doesn't always make sense from a philosophical perspective, but that's the point, you know, you want people to think about, just getting people to think about logic and philosophy on a show like this, on so many levels, it's just brilliant. All right, this whole scene is amazing. I love this set. The little alien, f- best buddy of Scotty, is just brilliant. The way they frame this, the green lights, the long hallway. You hear someone coming. He, is he what? He looks a little small.
1: Is he small? Huh? And,
0: and I like how they are way more fascinated by him than vice versa, even though, oh, grab the goggles. So this I think that was this is definitely a practical. Th- okay, so this creature here is what we're gonna see a lot of in Star Wars, where it is practical. There is someone in it. There's a lot of makeup, but they use some light CGI to make the textures look a little bit more real, um, because practical makes it real. But it also looks like a costume if it's not enhanced at this point. And his eyes and everything. I wonder how they do the eyes. <laughs> so i wonder in the alternate time the original timeline he, the original timeline of the original star trek cast patrick Doohan playing uh, playing scotty who's here played by the amazing simon peg who almost single-handedly saves some bad uh or mediocre mission impossible movies. <laughs> you, can, but you can eat like a bead and you're done They're a married couple. Trans-warp beaming. Okay, so the notion is, and this is a total retcon, but it's not a retcon that's contradictory, is that in the original timeline, Scotty, while still a a cadet or lower officer before he gets to the Enterprise, I don't know how that worked in the original cast, comes up with a way of improving uh, beaming technology so radically... Beyond even next generation and the in the Star Trek shows that came later that took place many many decades in the future, they were unable to do this. So the implication here for people that are interested about transwarp theory, and you know, if you're an hour and twenty four in with me at this point, um, you probably know. But the idea is that in Spock's even further future that we've never seen on TV or screen before, um, that transwarp theory is finally realized and you can beam people much further than just down to a planet or between ships that are really close. And so, you know, he gives Scotty his own formula, which, you know, makes the accomplishment, I guess a little bit lessened, but a Scotty gets to see it and B you needed it for the plot. And because Spock, you know, is constantly praising him for coming up with it. It doesn't, it still feels earned, even though Spock has the final variable. And actually, the final variable is really cool. This is this is this actually sells it for me because the and the fact that Scotty would not consider relativity in this point coming up where he sees what Spock has done to perfect his uh, his equation, Scotty's equation. Right, trying to hit a bullet with a smaller bullet, but what he doesn't realize is that he thinks of the object as moving rather than space. I think that's what he says, space is the thing that's moving, which is basic relativity, but I can understand someone, you know. Yeah, there it is. But, you know, sometimes super geniuses are so focused on equations that they, they take someone else to complete it. Einstein was right about 95% of the stuff, but there was no way he was going to do quantum physics
1: theory as well um, in his time.
0: So this is great, because this is such a trope of time travel that, oh no, I have to do as little as possible to interfere in this timeline. Right, he, he's able to, to get the anger out of Spock pretty quickly, in a little bit, but they, they, they've built it up so well until now, that I totally buy it. But, you know, what's great is, later, when Spock meets Spock... And young Spock, Zachary Quintus, you know, how did you, how did you get, you know, Jim, Kirk, you know, to, how do you know how to push those buttons so easily, um, but not tell me that it was coming from you, and let lot boys, older Spock, you know, says, you know, I, I gave him the impression that, you know, I was going to destroy the universe should, um, uh, he reveal my identity to you, um, and so, actually, he, this, so, wh- wh- okay, so the point is, he, so the point is Kirk connects with old Spock first, and that's what lets him, because this Spock is obviously a lot older and wiser and been through a lot more, and, and in his line, he's been, you know, he's been loving uh, uh, Kirk for many, many decades, even past Kirk's death. Vulcans live longer, I don't know if I mentioned that before, again, like elves. <laughs> the alien guy. Uh but the idea is older Spock realizes that yes they need to win this mission and save the, you know, the federation and billions of people's lives, but there's a way to do it where Kirk and Spock can come to it a little more organically than just like bringing old Spock with him, which would be the easier sell, I suppose. But for the sake of the series, you had to have it happen a little organically, even though Kirk is quote-unquote cheating
1: with knowledge that he has that he shouldn't have. And see, this is the
0: great adventure stuff. This is totally unnecessary, but it addresses a pretty obvious thing, which is that, you know, what if you get beamed into something? You know, it's never explained how they know exactly where to beam you. But because it's transwarp beaming, I think that's the idea, is that the, it's, it's not as precise as it normally would be. In fact, that's definitely the idea. So, you know, this is a Star Wars thing. This is an Indiana Jones thing. i are going to see a lot of this in the Star Wars movie. It's great. All right, so coming up is something that they never do in Star Trek, even though it so obviously would be possible with their level of technology. Battlestar also cheats on this occasionally which is the video cameras. I mean, on this level of technology, you would have video cameras on every square inch of the ship. In Battlestar, from a technological standpoint, the way they set up the technology is as both advanced but somewhat old and primitive. You can buy not having video screens, but they once or twice use it in the series when they really didn't have to, but, so you can kind of just forget about it. But in the Star Trek universe, you you know... It's when you, where you have sort of Big Brother, good guy, or you know, the good guy version of Big Brother in the Federation. Cupcake, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um There's no way they wouldn't have video cameras, 360, live everywhere, save so everything. You can search by keyword. All right, so this is the series. This is where this this series as a series takes off which makes the second movie just that much more disappointing Hanging <laughs> not out but having Scotty here is exactly what you need yeah he's already taken orders from Quark <laughs> You're right. I mean he's been in a hole forever so he's not gonna he doesn't give a fuck about who's in command he, he's just glad to be off that rock yep Kirk's implant, and second, Nimoy told him he's got to make Spock angry. He's been thinking about how to do this, right? And that's the
1: thing: Spock's own simulation was supposed to be about having fear. Yeah, the close-ups on
0: the face here. I mean, you got to have two faces that are easy to look at. I mean, Sacro is not like a stud, but he's definitely a good looking dude. Yeah, you never loved her. So that is... So, you know, this is obvious. Well, maybe it's not obvious. Oh, his... He's, that's the other thing. is, Vulcans are stronger. They live longer. But how brutal. He just goes after Kirk. Tries to kill him. So, you know, when Kirk says you never loved her, and he, he hits him with rage. I like how no one tries to stop him. Until... Dad. It is a great device to have Dad on on the bridge the whole time, but not show him. Is it convenient for this? Yes, but it shows that, as much as Spock's been losing his mind, he's smart enough to know in his state that he needs his dad around, even though his dad has no. I mean, he is the ambassador to Earth, and so it, you know it'd be logical that he would be there in this time of crisis. But I think Spock wanted him around for moral support, whether he would admit it that way or not.
1: but because
0: future spock knew this specific regulation it would make sense that oh, new spock this spock would also be very familiar with that regulation which is you know even more powerful because you know vulcans should be exempt from that regulation if, i mean uh, let's put it this way all peoples all races all species have their their strengths and their weaknesses. And there's plenty of things that Vulcans are, are, are weak on, but losing your cool and having to give up command you probably don't expect to be one of them. Here, Cobbs. <laughs> I love how they frame this. He stalls his hands up. <laughs> I like this.
1: Gotta break the tension. Yeah, even McCoy's pissed, even though he knows Kirk's right.
0: <laughs> yeah. <sighs> yeah, the little dig at him as captain this goes back to the Kobayashi Baru test but now unlike the test which is just a simulation they know each other better and the stakes are so much higher obviously they're infinitely higher that it, even though she's a little angry at him in general for just being a jackass and and what he just did to her boyfriend <sighs> She wants to be on board, so she. This is what's beautiful about Zoe Zoe Saldana's acting is she delivers it like it's a jab, but especially when he says, "I, "I hope I'm right too." Basically, you know, she's really saying we need to get this right. It's not ultimately about you know making fun of him or taking a dig at him. Yeah, Zoe's so brilliant. Zachary Quinto just kills it. I mean, you know, again, Spock is often the coolest character. And in this movie, as great as Chris Pine is, you know, it's all about Spock and the Vulcans and It sort of blew their wad a little bit in the first movie by destroying Vulcan, which, by the way, was the one to make first contact with humans. You know, the Star Trek first contact was about that initial meaning. Humans were killing each other in the future on Earth in a near-apocalyptic scenario. But one brilliant scientist hit warp drive. That attracted the Vulcan's attention, and they send a landing party, and that leads to peace and reconciliation on Earth in a quantum leap forward technologically, literally. So... You know, I wish they had mentioned that in this movie, um, that there's there's, as close as Vulcan is diplomatically to Earth anyways, that they were the first, um, and that they were already well advanced beyond humans uh, when they made first contact. Just some cool stuff, world building, that would have been easy to put in, that would have added even more weight to it. I'm trying to remember if Chekhov is always coming up with stuff. They make him a boy genius here. That's not how he was in the original series. Scotty, I think, is supposed to be... Well, I guess Scotty's brilliant in terms of engineering, but, the, but Chekhov, Chekhov and Scotty overlap a little bit. But, but they, I think they, they sort of agree with each other here, which shows that yeah, it's not so bad to have two geniuses on board. I guess three with Spock.
1: And so, this is where, you know, Kirk is logical. 17, yeah, like that's gonna be legal. Uh, Here we go, he's got it together. I love, Zoe walks forward. Look at her, oh, Ahura is just glowing that he's already got his shit together. Yep, see, they talk about the common ancestry.
0: Which is true. I mean, his genetic, that's the thing. And this particular thing makes sense, that his genetic code at least has a better chance of working. Look at Ahura. She, she's just staring at him with just love and admiration. God, Zoe Saldana is so good. And, and they frame the whole crew there, but you're looking at Saldana. And it's not just because he's beautiful, it's because she's killing her performance. Communicating so much. I just saw her. Uh, we are getting to know each other. He hints that he's—he's, he's, you know, he knows more about Spock than Spock thinks. Um, I just recently saw *Infinitely Polar Bear*. I don't know when I'm gonna release this commentary. It's mid-August as of my recording, but uh, she plays the semi-estranged wife of Mark Ruffalo, who has a pretty severe case of bipolar before it was, you know, as well diagnosed as it is today. Back in the '70s, I suppose. Um, but they have two daughters who they both love incredibly dearly and the daughters love them but they have a crazy dad and their mom can't find a job and um they're great together it's funny you know the marvel connection you got the hulk and uh, Gamora and infinitely polar bear is amazing i guess marvel has so many dozens of famous actors in their movies that doing the kevin bacon game with marvel is, so, is easy to do at this point this is great the the beaming right into gas giant essentially, or, or I guess it's was it the rings of, of Saturn or one of the moons, just rising out, yeah. And they you know they mirror this in the second reboot movie into darkness coming out of the water, which is what gives them away and gets Kirk and Kirk in trouble. But this is so glorious. Saturn looks great. Main problem with all the Star Trek movies for the most part is that it well many of them is a come that it always comes back to Earth. This one ends up coming back to Earth. Second one ends up coming back to Earth. Earth always, you know, I mean, in the Federation, Earth is pretty far removed from the bad guys, the Klingons and the Romulans and stuff. It's other Federation planets that get nailed. Um, It's not that they never go back to Earth in the TV series. It's just not as much of a priority. I'm fine with them doing it in the first, especially because of the symmetry of Vulcan. (laughs) She's got his hands on her butt a little bit. They have great chemistry. God, this casting was good. I mean, Zoe has great chemistry with everyone. Even Peter Quill, played by uh, Chris Pratt, she kind of despises. Um, I mean, it's the, I mean her Gamora is the opposite of this character in almost every way, and her relationship with Smock is different with her, her relationship in Guardians with <laughs> with. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> with Chris Pratt is totally different relationships than her relationship with Spock. Such a versatile actress. And by the way, I want to see these two guys and more stuff. Where's Zachary Quinta? This guy can act. I briefly watched Heroes a few years back just because I was desperate. I couldn't get past one season, but as I believe his name was Skylar, it was like a you know horrible mass murderer uh of people with superheroes um yeah this is a nice guy he was great in that show this is a nice guy he's like i'm gonna be me at a place where there's gonna be nobody you don't have to worry about it nope i'm gonna be you basically onto, if not the bridge then sort of the command center yeah in battlestar they have two bridges but they get rid of the second one pretty quick there's the cic which is the main command center but then there's a place they call tactical or something like that which is where they plan out specific um missions from a military standpoint but it, it, they look too similar it just didn't make sense I think they just sort of combined them without saying anything there's no sense at all to how I mean you know these little narrow bridges everywhere going down thousands of feet it doesn't make sense there are some great jumps here one or two well, we might assume at the beginning I forget oh he's grabbed that guy's head I didn't even realize that uh, but there's a matrix kind of jump coming up by, I think, Nero or one of the other guys. Okay, so it's... Right. So, red means kill uh, in the front of the blaster. And then they switch to blue means stun. Awesome device. It, you know, it's a little on the nose. In, in the Next Generation, they're saying, you know, set phasers to sun. Set phasers to level 8. Set phasers to, you know, vaporize. But Kirk... The reason he turns it to blue, it's hard to notice until you've seen this a bunch of times. now it's on red, now he's killing guys. But this particular guy he put on blue, specifically to stun him, specifically so Spock can mind meld with him. Another hint that he's familiar with Spock, in ways Spock doesn't know the mind meld, but Spock doesn't put it together quite yet. The drill looks amazing, it's so industrial, it's shaking around. Yes, it's a huge beam of light, but it's a really normal-looking color light and just the like way shaking around with the smoke. Yeah, I mean, it's always about destroying... I mean, the second movie, too, they try and attack Starfleet in San Francisco. I just don't understand. It's like, they feel like Star Trek is already kind of difficult for the mainstream audience, even though it always makes money. That's why they keep making movies, even though it's considered, like, a fringe nerd property. It's really not, but, they, you know, it's like, oh, we got to keep it coming back to Earth for the casual audience. It's like... N- no, you know, they're supposed to be on a five year mission out in space, you know, being scientists and discovering shit, encountering aliens, good and bad, and neutral, and all over the place. I mean, they have to do it in the third one. There's already a horrible name for the new one. I think they're calling it Star Trek Beyond. I'm actually okay with that name. I mean, it's like Into Darkness, it doesn't mean anything but Beyond is at least giving us a hint that they are going to do the five-year mission thing, and if even if that's the last of the of this cast, which I hope it's not, but it looks like it will be, unless they really pull some shit out of their ass. Maybe, like Thor 3, it will finally fulfill the promise that the first two have set up, which is more epic and more cosmic. Thor Ragnarok, well, I loved the first Thor movie, the second one was weak, Thor Ragnarok has to take it to a new level. We haven't seen an all-out cosmic... Uh, yeah battle, or
1: even situation with Thor had. Guardians obviously surpassed Thor in that, uh, on that count.
0: Right, here's where Spock puts it together, that Jim's holding stuff back from him. This plan is great, and what's great about it is they explain enough of it, so you aren't going, what the hell are they doing? But, They don't specifically, and you could maybe put it together that he's going to kamikaze the ship that has all the red matter on it. I like that the red matter is tied to the ship. I like that the Romulans couldn't take it out or for fear of something happening, so that that's why they hold on to the ship. So this works. I mean, that's the thing from a plot standpoint. It's not always consistent, but it always works. And so the idea of you know, crashing that entire red ball, and I'll point out that, that, that I was sort of hinting at that earlier about the power of all the red matter being released at once. Because it it creates a black hole at the end that's not that much more powerful than you know the little the little dot of uh... <laughs> that's great. You got to keep kicking Kirk's ass. Here we go. I think this is the jump here. No. Right, so Nero's a minor, but he has a very specific political agenda. He seems very well knowledgeable. But I'm guessing that in his plan to take revenge on Spock, he read everything about Spock and everyone that was associated with Spock, so that actually makes sense to me. Yeah, it's totally the Harrison Ford thing. I, I, like I said, I really hope Chris Pratt as Star-Lord and Guardian, starts doing more hand-to-hand and getting his ass kicked because, you know... That's the whole idea of being a hero, is going against, you know, much greater odds. So, you sort of can get that, right, that he chewed his way out,
1: right? And so you're going, okay. So, of course, they have to perfectly time it, which they do. Spock being Spock would probably have gone through with the plan all oh, right i've always forget he shoots the mining drill that's great
0: i think spock based on the second movie where he's willing to sacrifice himself in a radical way to save a civilization he has no connection with i think even if kirk and, and pike were not able to get off at time he still would have executed the plan and blown up the ship kamikaze style. I uh, love this, but I like it because Bana, even though he acts in not in control of his emotions, here we go, right there. That's like almost like the praying mantis, uh, the Matrix. Um, you know the way Nero gets outraged now is just screaming, "Spock, Spock." Right, the evil. I should have killed Spock when I had the chance. But it's, you know, like typical villain, he knew in the back of his head he was going to lose the whole time. Right, and so now it's just about killing Spock. It's getting all nihilistic. Yeah, they really make the ship's movements so dynamic and kinetic. Oh, right. Uh, the, uh, see, that's the thing. The plan's even cooler than than you remember. It's not just a Kamikaze, but he's he's got a direct... That's an awesome warp engine, by the way. That looks just like a giant engine. Uh, they had to get him back to the Enterprise. The Enterprise could attack the thing enough to get the defenses down and to get these guys back. That's a brilliant plan, actually. Into Darkness had nothing that cool. Most sci-fi movies don't. I mean, you know, in Guardians of the Galaxy, final battle on, on Xandar, which is great to see in bright daylight like on a planet with spaceships, as cool as that scene was, they try the whole time to take down the, you know, Ronin's giant mothership, and he still makes it to the ground and kills most of the good guys. I got your gun. There you go. Oh, yeah, seems like a good ship. They don't even have a railing there. Cocky, I suppose. The thing is, it does feel like a damp... Uh, you know, uh, dusty mining ship. It totally works for me, the aesthetic, especially because, as I mentioned, it has the uh, blues, purples, greens uh, that we see with the Romulans in Next Generation. They're my favorite alien in Next Generation. They're the big bad guy because the Klingons are our friends or at least allies. That was in this, this trailer, but it's so cool. Fire everything. Here we see that Spock is a sick pilot.
1: yeah right
0: great shot this is why star wars is gonna look so cool that's the thing oh yeah the see this is awesome you see this in the theater you're like why did spock jump oh yeah it was a staging point for a surprise attack only way to get hits in and they fired everything at spock's ship so they can't fire anything at the enterprise supposedly because he said fire everything I always wondered, the bl- yeah, the blood on the sides of his mouth look green. I wonder if that's the insect that was in his mouth, or what, I don't know. <laughs> he's a really a and that looks like a human. You know, this is all stuff of just a, a guy sitting in a chair on a set, looking like he's steering a ship, and Zachary Quinto totally sells it. Uh, you can already start to see him beam away. That's the thing, he, he couldn't have stopped the plan, even if he wanted to, wh- whether Kirk got off the ship or not. I think they realized that they would have some time. Well, this is the other inconsistency. So not only do they blow up enough red matter to, like, swallow multiple solar systems, but it takes a while inside of the freaking Romulan ship. <laughs> Scaddy's just pumped that he's smart. this is great okay so now the two of them are totally on board you know that's the thing they really could have just released this movie and in some ways i'm cool with just having this one piece sort of the official reboot so great to see their how they come together right so this creates like a super massive black hole that you know Okay, so I guess the idea there was that much red matter was because um, Spock had to, or tried to, create a black hole big enough to swallow a supernova, basically, which is so much bigger than a planet. That's probably why it's the whole thing. Right, so they <laughs> like blow up all of this stuff enough to take down the supernova, and it's right in the middle of the ship but the ship's being sucked backwards. It makes no sense. See, this is great. Here it is. Not this time. All right, Kirk tries to go logical for Spock's sake. Spock says, not this time. This is great. They don't even try to negotiate anymore.
1: (laughs) Yeah, they are hoping that he said no. Also,
0: what I like about Next Generation is here they have Sulu... Steer the ship, do warp drive, fire shit. I mean, he's really doing everything. The next generation, Worf, who's a cl- half Klingon, half human, who, um, you know, is is the, the main cast, is the 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 minister of defense, basically, but he has his own console above the captain's chair where he does all the f- the defensive stuff or offensive stuff with phasers and phatons. I like that he's a specific person for that. Plus, he's in charge of just general security on the ship. Thing is, I don't mind that it gets to see this thing already, because this shot of Nero right here, I mean, you, you feel bad for the guy for a second. He accomplished nothing except destruction and hatred. And it looks so good. And this little gag coming up, uh, it, I would just never have thought to do this, and it makes total sense. You're like, why isn't it being swallowed up, but why are they not getting out of there? Here it comes. Yeah. Why aren't we at warp? We are. So they are at warp. So so their full warp engines are just enough to almost get out of a gravity well of a super mega super
1: massive black hole.
0: Right, we finally get Scotty running around the engine room frantically trying to come up with a plan. Yeah, that's a little unrealistic. And this is the reason why they put the bridge in the middle of the ship and, like, a submarine in on Battlestar Galactica. You don't want the bridge exposed at the top. I know it looks cool to have the view screen or whatever, but this is exactly why you have the bridge buried deep in the middle of the ship and rely on cameras and computers and stuff to see what's going on, but whatever. So, ejecting warp cores, they've used this trick throughout Star Trek things, at least a couple times.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, in
0: order to create the power of the warp drive, even though they have, like, super powerful fusion warp drives or whatever, might be fission or fusion, I don't know. And even though it's consolidated at this point into a relatively small package and those engines with their level of technology, if exploded, you know, can create a ridiculously huge explosion. And
1: Kirk went with his only option, and it worked. Yep. This is great. They're all smiling at each other.
0: There's a great Aurora Spock moment at the end. I can't wait for the very end. Okay. Another thing they repeat in the second movie, you know, they honor Kirk here with a standing ovation after almost suspending him earlier and everyone loves Kirk. I don't the whole crew should be rewarded. I hate that, you know. it's like in Lord of the Rings and we're talking about Frodo, Frodo, Frodo. Yeah, what about Sam? You know, Sam's carrying at least half the load. Uh oh, this is great. But the bigger problem is they do almost the same thing at the end of Into Darkness, and it's worse because he gives this really unkirk like motivational speech at the end of Into Darkness. God, that movie is so disappointing. You know, disappointing movies, this goes without saying, I like, triple the disappointment when the first one is so great. But unlike Matrix Reloaded, which really grew on me over time, it became one of my, uh, really my favorites to just watch over and over again. Into Darkness has never done that, and I don't think ever will. But it's an unfair comparison, because... Oh, here it is. He inferred that universe editing paradoxes would ensue should he break his promise.
1: He lied. I implied. Yep. Right. here's where he explains it. Yeah, it would be logical to do this. Right, it's so great to have the elder statesman rebuild Vulcan. God,
0: it's such a cool concept. I mean, L- Leonard Nimoy can just say anything, and it's just dripping with gravitas, but because of his smile and the joy in his eyes, it just goes down so smooth. Right, here's the thing in his old age, he's realized the difference between doing the logical thing and doing the right thing. <laughs> My, my customary farewell which is live long and prosper which would be telling himself to live l- long and prosper but they but with the the vulcan the uh, hand thing uh yeah he still communicates it and what's great is spock is probably the only of the characters who could actually handle not only this paradox but the continued existence of two versions of himself he's just he's that smart and he's able to compartmentalize I always thought this was a funny shot. It's almost like his belly's out in his butt. I think Chris Pine's got a little a little junk in the trunk. Right, he gets a medal. Everyone else did nothing. I just don't like the standing ovation. Because that's the thing. That's what Kirk wants. That's what the bad side of Kirk wants. Or at least the flawed side. I love that it's Tyler Perry doing all this. He's not a bad actor. And this is so unStarfleet. starfleet both in terms of, I mean, just the culture of Starfleet. It's hero worship is not a part of that. Even Captain Picard, you know, in Star Trek: The Next Generation, who has the the you know later version of the Enterprise. See, he's loving it. He's getting applause. Yeah, even Captain Picard is always. Def- well, he does have a bit of an ego. He's always deflecting praise and stuff onto other people. And even though he's the best captain in all of the Federation, which is saying something, considering they have at least hundreds of ships, not thousands, probably thousands, um, he's got the flagship, and they do the heavy lifting with that ship. And so there's a great respect for him, but you don't have to give him a medal and a standing ovation. But again, only made worse for me when I saw them repeat it in a more corny way in the second movie. Right, and then, see, this, the problem is, you get here, and you're like, okay, next adventure. I don't want to wait for the next movie. You had to wait three years for Into Darkness to come out. <laughs> Buckle up, Oates. You get everyone's shot, you know, everyone's little bit. You know, you watch this. And with Next Generation, you can just go to the next episode. And here you're like, oh, I want to see them go on their mission. And then Into Darkness just takes many backwards steps. I, I always love how casually um, Sulu sort of... You know, throw, flicks his fingers over the console. It's not so mechanical like Data. Ah, I like how he's, he, he's already playing
1: a deferential towards Kirk. This look coming up.
0: Alright. There, between those two. Her boyfriend's back in town. And they're working at the consoles next to each other. That's the thing. It was like that in the original series, but I think of hooked up with with William Shatner. Uh, it's way, way cooler for it to be Spock. All right, so Spock does the, the outro reading that they always do in Star Trek. So in the original Star Trek series, they actually say a five-year voyage and those series might have lasted slightly more than five years but that was the plan it was a five-year voyage where they don't really come back to earth and here they go the star trek next generation route where they say a continuing voyage so it's open-ended but then in into darkness they go back to a five-year voyage which again the third one has to be them going into deep deep space new aliens new planets that we've never seen before We've already established that this is a brand new timeline. Kirk and Spock are way ahead of schedule, especially Kirk. Um, and the crew in general, the young crew, is way ahead of schedule. So, but man, what a, what a great movie. I mean, it did okay box office-wise. They, they greenlit the sequel pretty easily. It certainly didn't do like a Star Wars movie or a Marvel movie. But this is a fun movie to see, even if you know nothing about Star Trek or aren't really into the uh the original Star Trek or whatever. So, um, yeah, hope you enjoyed this commentary. Uh, if you like this movie, Into Darkness, it's definitely worth watching once just to see the cool visual effects and some character stuff. But don't expect too much, and I'm hoping that the third one, whether it's the last with this cast or not, I hope it's not. I think it will be. Uh, they just all have too many projects going on. Um, you know, they've got one last chance to really live up to the promise of the last John Chow that's his name that's Sula's name sorry John Chow um to live up to the challenge of the very end of this movie that we just saw where they all come together and it's time for them to go way out and do stuff no one's done before not keep coming back to earth honestly (laughs) if I find out ahead of time that they're coming back to earth in the third movie I'm not even gonna see it in the theater so there you have it there's my promise people mark it down that's the bizzle hope you enjoyed the commentary Zoe Saldana amazing Carl Urban, so good. Oh, Yelchin, right? That's Chekhov, he's great. Bonnet is awesome as a villain, I'm not gonna lie. And Leonard Nimoy is Leonard Nimoy. Chris Hemsworth, you can barely recognize, even once you've seen Thor and the Avengers a bunch, like I have. But I hope Paramount does the right thing. And, uh... And, uh... You know, goes more Star Trekky. I do. I want more techno babble. Screw it. People are gonna see it if it's well done. You know, I'm talking Lord of the Rings. They, they're always naming like locations and you know, and Numenor and stuff. That unless you've read the Lord of the Rings books extensively, you have no context. But the way they framed it just works for the casual viewer, and just makes the world feel fuller and bigger and more interesting. And I think you can really do that with Star Trek in a way that they've they've almost been afraid to do. So. Um, Anyways, hope you enjoyed the commentary. I'll be talking to you soon. Bizzle out.